We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Hey, guess what? I've got a book coming out. How exciting is that? It's called School X, and it's all about helping you as a principal be a designer of your school and not just a manager. So I hope you'll check it out. You can download the free chapter at schoolx.me. So just go to schoolx.me to download the first free chapter. And once you get it, hit reply to the email and tell me what you think. Looking forward to sharing that with you. That's schoolx.me. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformativeprinciple. I am excited to be a media partner for the Conrad Challenge. The Conrad Challenge is this amazing educational experience that allows students to create real-world applications to solve problems that we are facing today. It's amazing. Check out more at conradchallenge.org. That's conradchallenge.org. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This is episode 358, and I'm very excited to have with me Barb Lobotka, the principal of Montessori School in Chicago. Welcome, Barb. Thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you so much, Jethro, for having me on your show. 
Well, I'm excited to talk to you because today, the day we're recording this is August 31st, and it is the 150th birthday of Maria Montessori. And someone, although I've never been to as a student or worked in a Montessori school, her ideas and philosophy have really shaped my educational belief. So I'm excited to talk to someone who's actually uh, more aware of her than I am and uh, fill me in on what we need to know about Maria Montessori. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. I'm really grateful to share some insights into her life, into her philosophy. And I'm a person who really loves to hear a good story. And my favorite question is, if you've ever asked, if you've ever been asked, if you could sit down and have coffee with anyone in the history of the world, who would that be? So here's another person, Dr. Montessori, who I would love to sit down and have coffee with. But since since I can't, you know, she had some biographers, particularly E.M. Standing, who was a, a dear friend of hers, who was entrusted to share her story with the world. And a lot has been written about her work, her educational philosophy. And I, I did want to talk today something about an aspect of her story that I learned when I went through Montessori teacher training myself that I hope can give us all some perspective as school leaders amidst uh, the difficult times that we're facing in the world, because she lived through very difficult times too. You know, she born in the 19th century, turn of the century, and she had from 1870 to 1952, she lived. And she really had in the late 1890s, an unexpected pregnancy. She was not married. She gave birth and she didn't even raise her child as she was developing her philosophy and beginning her work, she didn't, her, her son and her met, and she met formally when he was 15 years old. And he, then he stayed close by her side the rest of, of their lives. But she also lived through a couple of wars. She lived through uh, World War II, the Spanish Civil War. She had to deal with um, racial and political unrest in her country and also a male dominated field of medicine because she's a medical doctor and she had to study being really kind of patronized and and humiliated in her work because of the fact, you know, that she was a woman at that time and she was kind of dismissed, you know, but she just kept going because she really believed in what it was that she was doing. And so she faced all these difficult times and she rose above them, which is something for us to think about too, as we face each day, right? And in our work. And personally, I was very privileged to study at the Seton Montessori Institute, which is a lab school. It trains teachers from around the world and it has been doing so for over 40 years. And so I was invited to do a job embedded student internship there for a couple of years, which was a real privilege. And when, what I found when I began to study Montessori, her life and her work and her educational philosophy, I really discovered a kindred spirit because you have all of these different educational theorists that we are familiar with, Rousseau, Itard, Sagone, Froebel, Erickson, Piaget, Vygotsky, Skinner, Brunner, Bloom, Gardner. You know, she was influenced by many of them, but she was influenced more by her faith. She and no other educational theorist that I know of tapped into or connected their faith to their theory. And I was so impressed by that because I felt that we should bring our faith, God, into our work and we should find him there. And if we don't, 
try to seek God and to find God and to love God in and through our work, then where are we going to find him anyway? You know, we work a lot. We work very long days. And is God a part of that? You know, do we let God inspire us in our work every day? So I understood, I felt on a very deep level what she was trying to say, what she was trying to do, what she was trying to be, what she was trying to develop, and how she blended science and education and spirituality. And she found that none of this was at odds. She had really beautiful things to say about God and about teaching and learning all at the same time. It was all connected. And she really drew upon the lives of the saints and on the word of God to illustrate her method. And her theory was really imbued with the gospel. And she was inspired. She was compelled to share it. And she did. And here we are 150 years later which is just so amazing that she started and she was able to reach all the corners of the world with her method. And her education was really groundbreaking because it was the first scientific educational method. So all the other methods were based on a model, kind of an abstract model of the child that would derive from an educational method. But she, being a doctor and a researcher, she went the other way around and she decided that she would experiment with the methods. And then based on the results, she would build a theory of the child and how they would learn. And then she tested it and refined it through ongoing experimentation. So this scientific character of her work produced these excellent results. And they were validated again and again. And they were backed up. And in the times, you know, in the early 1900s, education looked very much like a one-room schoolhouse and a teacher and very sparse. And what was special about her work was that she broke through that and she discovered that it's really what the child needs, that we should be following the child. And we can learn a lot from them, um, even more than, than they learned from us. So there is a really iconic scene in her life that inspires us, I think, in our vocation as school educators and as parents. And, you know, it was that time that she was busy working and she was studying as one of the first female students admitted to medical school. You know, she was very smart and she was very determined. She graduated with high honors and she faced all kinds of obstacles and difficulties, as I mentioned, with her male counterparts. But in even her own parents, you know, her, her, her father, from what I understand, opposed her um, work and She was really understandably, you know, from what is written, she was kind of nearing a breaking point, right? So she's walking through a park in Italy. And at this time, she's kind of ready to throw up her hands and, and to kind of choose another career because she was just getting so frustrated with where she was. And so she's walking through a park and she's determining that she's going to find another career. So she's overwhelmed by a feeling of despair. She's this young student, and she's determined to abandon the unequal struggle against this sea of troubles, she called it. And she left the dissecting room with her mind quite made up to seek another career less strewn with obstacles. And it happened on the way that she was going through a park, which at that hour was empty of people. And as she walked along, thinking about her decision, she passed a shabbily dressed woman accompanied by a child of some two years of age. 
and the woman was disheveled and dirty, a professional beggar, and began at once to beg for alms as Montessori approached. It was not the woman, however, but the child who was destined to alter the course of her life. So this happens in the midst of her trouble, you know, in the midst of her worry and her struggles. So the mother was, you know, tuning up and the child was quite unconcerned and continued to sit on the ground playing with a small piece of paper. And there was something in the child's expression, so serenely happy in the possession of that worthless scrap of colored paper, observing it with the full absorption of its little soul that suddenly to her watching, it brought an inner experience that from that moment, she never doubted that she had a vocation. And she said herself, I cannot explain it. It just happened like that. You will probably think it's a very silly story. And if you told it to others, they would probably laugh at it. In this, we see this affinity which exists deep down in the soul of a genius and really deep down in the soul of all of us, because we've all had moments like this, right? Towards that work, which we are destined to perform and everything connected with it. And so she really, up until that time, had no idea that she would find her life's mission in the sphere of education. And, and she did. She went, turned around and when she went right back and she continued her work. And, and here we are today and the benefits of all of this. So I think that it, it has something to say about how we, how we approach our work and how we develop our work and how we are open to the possibilities of even the ordinary things around us inspiring us in our work. So I am fascinated by this. I didn't know these, that story about the, the beggar and the little girl. Would you ad-lib for just a moment before you go to the next story and talk more about how that little girl changed her trajectory and your personal thoughts on it? Because I think that's a, a valuable piece. Also, just as a side note, don't you just hear this story speaking so much to you in your current situation? Because I sure do. Just saying. So, <laughs> so ad lib on that for just a second, and then you can go back into what you were doing. Okay, so really, in, in the years to come, she really demonstrated the fact that many things in life are indirect. And sometimes you have to realize that things are going to come to you, inspirations at moments when you don't, when you least expect them. And also that we are all really called to the work that we should do. And she actually was taken ill about the time that this all happened. And, and some were anxious about her recovery. And she said, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to die. I still have a lot of work to do. So she, it began to really inspire in her that she was doing a very important work. She had all this criticism and she still kept going. And she had, you know, was giving a lecture one day and her father, who was at that moment, they were a bit estranged to one another, ran into someone that he knew that at times that, that had told him that she was giving this brilliant lecture and that her, her delivery and her personality was so fascinating and, and that she received this, you know, ovation and so forth. And she was, you know, chosen to give speeches and to be a voice of authority, you know, at that time of, um, because of her, everything that she was passing on to them. And she was entertained by, you know, Queen Victoria herself and, and so forth. So when she um, then began to be invited to 
develop her method with a group of children. It was January 6th of 1906. And she gave a little speech to the group of people that was there when she began her work. And it was like an official opening ceremony. And she gave this inaugural address. And so she shows up and on this opening day, and she says she suddenly had this intuition that what she was doing had this immense significance. She says, I had a strange feeling which made me announce emphatically that here was the opening of an undertaking of which the whole world will one day speak. It was the feast of the epiphany and the words of the epistle seemed to her at once an omen and a prophecy. For behold, darkness shall cover the face of the earth, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and the Gentiles shall walk in thy light and kings in the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see, then shalt thou see and abound and thy heart shall wonder and be enlarged when the multitude of the sea shall be converted to thee. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. When they heard her, the audience, read these words and listened to the speech which followed, the audience were stupefied. They were amazed that she would see in a room full of 60 poor children a matter of such wonderful significance of which she was speaking. Yet that event definitely proved her intuition was right. So before a year had even passed, others were really being converted, so to speak, to this method. And... She says, again, when she talks about it, I set to work, she says, like a peasant woman who, having set aside a good store of seed corn, has found a fertile field in which she may freely sow it. But I was wrong. I had hardly turned over the clods in my field when I found gold instead of wheat. The clods concealed a precious treasure. I was not the peasant I had thought myself. Rather, I was like foolish Aladdin who, without knowing it, had in his hand a key that would open hidden treasures. You know, when we discover our work and you become inspired and and enthused, you can see that she's having all of these articulate understanding of what it was that she was really, that the children were revealing themselves unexpectedly to her. And speaking generally, these are 
kind of the normal characteristics of childhood that she was dealing with. She was discovering that children presented, they possessed higher qualities than those that previously were attributed to them. It was as if this higher of them should be kind of liberated so that they could really become all that they were meant to become. And that is really, really something. She would go in and she would teach the children and she would be so amazed. She says that it took time for me to convince myself that all of this was not an illusion. As her method began to work, she couldn't even believe it. And after each new experience proving such a truth, I said to myself, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. I'll believe in it next time. You know. So for a long time, she remained incredulous and at the same time, deeply stirred. How many times did I not reprove the child, children's teacher when she told me what the children had done for themselves? Because Montessori was a lot about freedom and responsibility, that children should be free to choose the work that they're going to do, and they will be responsible with that work. And they can be directed into works of mathematics or into language, into geography, into science. And they will gravitate towards the things that interest them and they can go deep into those subjects. And so she says, the only thing which impresses me is truth, she says. And I remember that she would say that when I see these things, I think it must be the holy angels who are inspiring these children. One day in great emotion, she says, I took my heart in my two hands. And, you know, we've all been there as teachers too. You know, you've, you've taught that child who's been, maybe others have struggled with, or the child is struggling and you work with the child, work with the child to get them to a certain point, And then you have a breakthrough and it's such a beautiful experience. It's like none other. I mean, education is the most transformative work, you know, I mean, it's, it's the best work. Right. And so she was experiencing this in her method. So she says, I took my heart in my two hands as though to encourage it to rise to the heights of faith. And I stood respectfully before the children saying to myself, who are you then? Have I perhaps met with the children who were held in Christ's arms and to whom the divine words were spoken? I will follow you to enter with you into the kingdom of heaven. And holding in my hands the torch, torch of faith, I went on my way. I mean, it's just really amazing. She observed children passing through sensitive periods of learning and developing and engaging them in self-directed activities in a specially prepared environment. And she wanted the environment to be like a home and she wanted um, them to be multi-age classrooms. And when you think about our workspaces and, and where we are, are now, you are not working with everyone being the same age. You're working with people who are older than you, people who are younger than you, and you have to learn how to get along, right, with everybody. You have to be collaborative. And the older ones are the leaders, and they help the younger ones. The younger ones look up to the older ones until they can, can achieve those same activities that they're doing. And so she saw that as very important. She saw Montessori and education as an aid for life that children needed it. They needed to learn how to develop and how to do things for themselves and to be part of the family and, and to help out at home. And so it had kind of a familial aspect about it that was a big part of her work. She wasn't about children sitting still for long periods of time or memorizing facts or following directions precisely. She wanted children to be free to learn. That was really a lot about her method. She wanted to match activities to abilities. 
she wanted to encourage repetition, but that, that children would always be learning until they mastered something at their own pace. So she discovered that children love order. She discovered that children love real materials rather than fantasy type of play, that they liked to work in silence. They liked to learn manners. They liked to be socially accepted and they liked to behave that way. They were, they wanted to take care of their themselves, have personal hygiene and to, to have independence and, that when you gave that to them, then they would just learn so much. They would be so free to learn. And really, when you look at this, even from a, you know, maybe a psychological viewpoint, our brains are not even designed for learning. You know, they're designed to keep our body alive, right? I mean, there were no cavemen in calculus class, right? So she discovered that if children are free to learn, and if they feel loved in a healthy way, respected, they will learn. They, they will have that within them to learn. But if they're not given that freedom, it's harder for them, really, really harder for them. So she felt that they would have an intrinsic motivation when they were given freedom, when they were given responsibility, and it all leads to a great satisfaction for the children. They wanted to have materials that were self-correcting so that they could figure it out as they were doing it. Oh, this doesn't work. Okay. But if I put it here, it does work and they could set themselves up to win. So, you know, Montessori children are can be very mature in that way. They they know that I might not know how to get there, but I'm going to find I'm going to find the way because I'm used to I'm used to working through the challenges to get to where I'm trying to go. So she believed that physical movement was very important. It helped mental focus, and um, that children should feel valued. They should feel relaxed. They should feel comfortable. So that's why classroom Montessori classroom looks very different than a traditional classroom because the children have workspaces that perhaps are on the floor, perhaps are at tables and can lay out their materials and feel, you know, at peace, feel relaxed in their work. And she just really applied her ideas in that way. And she discovered that as she was attending conferences, you know, publishing papers, and she realized that what children need is different than what what we think they should need as what it was before she began her work. So I guess I also wanted to mention that I was thinking about her last letter. So the last letter that she, last message that she put out was in 1946. And she said this, and I wanted to share it with everybody because it's so amazing to think about it even today and everything that we're going through today. She says, my life has been spent in the research of truth. Through the study of children, I have scrutinized human nature at its origin, both in the East and in the West. And although it is 40 years now since I began my work, childhood still seems to be an inexhaustible source of revelations. And let me say it, of hope. And so here we are teaching and learning and principling in you know, a pandemic and here we are, and we have to realize that we have to have hope in what we're, what we're doing, no matter the situation that we're in. We should always approach our work with hope. We should pass that on to the children. Childhood has shown me that all humanity is one. All children talk, no matter what their race or their circumstances of their family, more or less at the same age. They walk, they change their teeth at certain fixed periods of their life. In other aspects also, especially in the physical field, they're just as similar, just as susceptible. Children are the constructors of men whom they build, taking from the environment, language, religion, customs, 
peculiarities not only of the race, not only of the nation, but even of the special district in which they develop. So here we are too. We have to think, what are our environments? What do our homes look like? You know, because as the home goes, so goes society, you know. What kind of environments are we putting them in? It's very important that you you consider what school am I going to educate my children in? Schools by and large are doing really great work out there, but you need to, for your own family, you need to look at the school and say, does this match the values that we're trying to impart on our children at home? Because you never want to de- deconstruct, you know, at school, all the efforts that you're putting into your environment at home. So it says childhood constructs with what it finds. If the material is poor, the construction is poor. As far as civilization is concerned, the child is at the level of food gatherers. In order to build himself, he has to take by chance whatever he finds in the environment. The child is the forgotten citizen. And yet, if statesmen and educationists once came to realize the terrific force that is in childhood for good or evil. And so I think about this and I think about, wow, you know, all the the protesting and all of this, you know, even the peaceful protests that are not, you know, peaceful at all. And, you know, you think about this, we, we have to really consider that this force, we have to really drown the evil in an abundance of good. And now is the time, you know, to do that. She says, I feel they would give it priority above everything else. So this should be our priority. All problems of humanity depend on man himself. If man is disregarded in his construction, how are we raising children to seek peace? You know, how are we doing that? Are we helping children to be peacemakers? The problems will never be solved. No child is a Bolshevist or a fascist or a Democrat. They all become what circumstances or the environment make them. In our days, when in spite of the terrible lessons of the two world wars, the times ahead loom as dark as ever before, we could say the same thing. This is 1946. We could say the same thing. I feel strongly that another field has to be explored besides those of economics and ideology, and it is the study of the child. She had such confidence in education, such confidence in teaching and learning in children and our work, you know, not of the adult man on whom every appeal is wasted. He economically insecure remains bewildered in the maelstrom of conflicting ideas and throws himself now on this side and now on that man must cultivate from the beginning of his life when the great powers of nature are at work. So Montessori always talked about the most important years are not the university years. They're the early years, you know, zero to six. Those are the years that are the most important. It is then that one can hope to plan a better social structure and better international understanding. And so all of this grace and courtesy, these lessons, giving children the words to use, helping them, they're, you know, when they're so little and they're so new to the planet, helping them to take care of one another. It's really a beautiful method. And there is just so much hope in that, um, that we can really build a better you know, build a better world based on how we are, how we are teaching and the environments that we put, that we are putting children in. It matters, our work. That's really what, what I wanted to share. The fact that her work is attractive to people who really, of all backgrounds, who value the ideals of, the ideals of freedom, responsibility, commitment to imparting knowledge and, and developing 
the children, really, you know, feeding their intellect, nourishing their mind, but also taking care of their heart, taking care of their soul. That is really worthwhile. If we take care of a child and helping them learn, but we are also taking care of kind of guiding their heart, taking care of their heart and their soul, that builds character, that builds faith. It's difficult to acquire those things when you're, you know, 40 years old, you know, because we know that a four-year-old is going to be going through a lot more as a 40-year-old than they are as a four-year-old, right? So we have to give them this gift so that later they can deal with all the things that are coming their way that are so challenging. She felt that faith should be a part of their education. That was her complete vision for education is that, that it, it is something that was at the heart of her method. And, you know, that we have in, in our school and, and there are about 25 Catholic Montessori schools in this country out of 4,000 Montessori schools in general, there are about 25. And that was just part of her view of that we are all, you know, we are spiritual, we are intellectual, physical, social, emotional. We have to really help children in all of these areas in a healthy way with a lot of love. And even though she dealt with all these persecutions in her life, she worked anyway, and she kept going. And her philosophy really hinges on the fact that we have to keep persevering through everything. We are children of God. We need to we need to really love one another. We need to take care of one another. And education should be a beautiful place. It should be the best, the best years. The children, you know, having happy memories of of their time in school, you know, from the time they're little all the way up. So, you know, the difficult times that we're living through now, we we can think, you know, she lived through these world wars and all of these different political hostilities forced her to live in exile for several years of her life. But it, it inspired her rather to put more of peace and joy into education, into our curriculum for children. And she took the opportunity to also train others in this method. And really, we, we do our work, we, we do it well, and we don't know when, when it be, will be our time to go. But we have been called at this time in history, in the history of the world, God has placed us here to do our work. And so we want to do the best that we can. And in the, in the end, she spent her, her final days, she actually passed away very peacefully on May 6, 1952, at the end of this life that, that she lived really to the most. She really gave herself in her vocation as, as we, you know, I think as we all do in our work every day. So I hope that this inspires others as much as it did me. And I, I really am grateful that you, you allowed me to share it with you today and with your listeners. So thank you. Well, I'm excited for what you shared because there are a lot of stories that I hadn't heard about Maria Montessori before. So thank you for that. And I would hope that what we take away from that is that I do believe we all have a purpose here. And if we can live into that, like Maria Montessori did, I think that that would be great. So thank you again, Barb, for sharing your story and her story today. And thanks all for listening. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. 
With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.